This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do love You. and Lord, we're so thankful to You for Your love for us. We love You because You first loved us. Lord, we pray that the result of this study, as, as well as all of our um, studies of Your Word and all of our fellowship together, will be that our love will grow, that we'll love You more, that we'll love one another more, that we'll have greater compassion for those on the outside who need to know You. And Lord, that we will have a greater desire to do what You've placed us here to do, to bring honor and glory to Your name. Please guide us now, we pray, in this, uh, in this study. Please grant understanding. Again, make Your truth effective in our hearts, we pray to bring about change so that we are conformed to the image of Your dear Son. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to Pick up where we left off this morning um, in verse 6. My intention this morning was to, uh, to, to uh, deal with verses 1 through 8 and try to cover all of that so we can come back and get 9 through, through 12 tonight. But um, you weren't listening fast enough, so... <laughs> okay, maybe it wasn't your fault... <clears throat> We didn't, we didn't make it. We didn't make it. My fault, but we didn't make it. All right, so I want to uh, come back and pick up with Paul's analogy here of, of the, uh, the Passover feast. And remember, what, what we have in view here is, um, is the, the purity of the church, and specifically the local church. Now, that may sound a little odd to you because um, we're used to talking, as we should, we're used to talking about in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so when you think in terms of the purity of the church, you know, you think, well, you know, that's nothing that we can do, nothing that we can achieve. We are solely and uh, only dependent upon the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us. That's, that's what makes the church pure. Well, that's certainly true in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of entering into right relationship with God, being reconciled to God. That is to say, our salvation is based upon the righteousness of Christ, that alone. So, we are saved, our salvation, our justification, is based upon an alien righteousness. 
That's not the righteousness of somebody from outer space, you know. That's the righteousness of Christ. We call it alien because it's, it's a, a righteousness foreign to us, outside of us. In other words, um, it's not something we do or something inherent with us, and it is never so. In other words, we're not, we don't become righteous before God by becoming righteous. We don't become justified before God by becoming righteous. We are saved based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Period. Um, in, in, in terms of righteousness in and of ourselves, we are still wanting. Right? We're still lacking there. Our salvation is based upon the righteousness of Christ alone. But, we can speak of being righteous, um, or the church, and the local church being righteous, uh, characterized by righteousness, if we mean by that uh, what we often call practical righteousness. In other words, just, just living according to the will of God. If our, if our life is characterized by God-likeness, that's a high standard, isn't it? But, but we are supposed to reflect to the world the character of God. That's what we're put here for. That's a high calling brothers and sisters, that's, that's a privilege to be appointed by God to reflect His character to the world. And that's, that's the reason, I think, for the church, the church uh, existing in the world. The church universal is also the reason for the existence of every um, local body that is, in truth, um, a church of the living God. So, we're talking about within... The context of the local body, um, we're talking about the purity. That is, keeping the church pure. Now, we, we've, we've run into a, a situation here um, where there's sin among the, uh, the Corinthians, specifically a man who is committing incest. Paul has pointed that out um, in, in, uh, in the opening of chapter, what we call the opening of chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Again, the implication there is you're tolerating it. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So, so Paul is telling the Corinthian believers, this person who is guilty of this sin should be removed from you. And he's in the process indicting the Corinthian believers for allowing such a thing, for tolerating such a thing in their midst. And then he speaks of his own judgment as part of his exhortation for them to take action. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembling, and that's Paul saying, I've already, I've already uh, judged here, um, and, and this man needs to be put out of the congregation. So now he gives instruction to the church to do this. Verse 4, and, and I, as I pointed out this morning, this, this is the responsibility of the congregation. And so Paul is, is instructing them to do it. He's not saying, I'll come there and do it for you. He's not saying, I'll send a letter, you know, and command the guy to get out. Or anything like that. He said, I'm telling you to do it. Expel this man from.
from the fellowship. Verse, uh, verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, in other words, operating under Jesus' authority, the idea there, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, as I said this morning, um, the, the uh, <clears throat> verse 5 is, is um, um, no doubt a difficult verse. And, and I don't want to, as I said this morning, don't want to speculate too much. It does seem to me uh, clear. We know for a fact Paul is saying put him out of the congregation. And then by saying turn him over to Satan, it seems like to me he's, he's just basically saying you're turning him back out into the world for the destruction of the flesh. That's, that's again, it seems to be suggesting there's an open door now for, in, in, uh, in a sense for Satan to... Um, attack him. He could be, just, just to point out an alternative understanding here, he, he could be referring to his sin nature, you know, for the, for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, turn him over to Satan with the hopes that, you know, his, his sinfulness, his sin nature will be destroyed and his soul saved. Um, I think probably uh, the first explanation I, I gave is more fitting. And, and one reason for that is some of the examples that we saw this morning uh, Acts 5, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were bodily, physically killed. Um, so I, I think um, that's more what's in view here. Not, not that that necessarily happens every time, but just saying it, it, if it comes to that, it's worth that if, if the end is that they are saved, uh, you'd, rather, you'd rather destroy the body be destroyed than the soul, Right? So, turn them over to Satan um, for the destruction of the, of the flesh so that, now here's, here's the purpose clause, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, that's, what, that's, that's Paul's ultimate goal here. This, this is not an attempt to <clears throat> condemn anybody to hell. This is an attempt to um, restore someone. It's an attempt to bring them to repentance for the sake of restoration. So, so, so Paul's goal here is that the man be saved. So, in other words, as, as, as harsh as this may sound to us, this is an act of love. And we ought to be familiar with this. The, the, the Lord chastens those whom He loves. Right? And we're not to despise the chastening of the Lord. Well, you say, well, that's the chastening of the Lord. Well, so is this. Through the agency of the church. One way that the Lord chastens His people is through His people. Through the agency of the church. And we'll see that again in a moment uh, from Jesus' teaching. But keep, keep that in mind. The goal here, and this is always the goal. I don't care how far gone Somebody is, by our estimation, the goal is always to bring them to repentance. The goal is always the salvation of their, their soul. Um, so, um, they, they become like the world again to you. Well, what, what, do we, what do we do 
with the world. How do we interact with the world? Hopefully we evangelize them, right? We, we exhort them to repent. So when a person is turned back out into the world, I think that's the idea, that they are to be treated, uh, again, not as, uh, uh, they're, they're not to be treated as brothers and sisters in Christ, but you're not cutting them off in, in the sense that you're saying, okay, now you're doomed. The idea now would be that you, you attempt to evangelize them. You treat them like you treat the world. So you turn them over to turn him over to Satan, Paul says, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's always the goal. <clears throat> Verse six, and this is where he goes into uh, an analogy using uh, the uh, the Passover feast. Your boasting is not good. Remember, he had just said you are arrogant when you ought to be mourning. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven Leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, all of that language there is taken from the, uh, the Old Testament um, Passover feast. That's what Paul has in mind. And he's just using that as an analogy. I had a, a, a friend one time, he was arguing for uh, keeping the dietary law, the Old Testament dietary law, and he pointed to this verse saying that, uh, this is, was essentially a command for us to continue the Passover feast. Well, that's not what Paul's doing here. He's using that as an analogy when he says keep the feast here. Um, we now have the substance, not just the shadow. But again, he's just using that by way of analogy to describe our partnership, our sharing, our relationship in Christ. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, a couple, couple things here. Um, again, he's addressing, he's back to addressing the church. When he says a little leaven leavens the lump, uh, the whole lump, he, he's not talking about, as far as the lump, he's not talking about the man. Okay, this man is, is, is bad now. He's been corrupted, although that's true. But he's using... Again, by, as, by way of analogy, the leaven to describe the man or the sinfulness of the man, or maybe he's not even doing that. Maybe he's just using leaven to describe their sinfulness, that is the church as a whole, by tolerating such a thing and not dealing with it. In other words, they're, like we said this morning, they're allowing, they're tolerating sin in the camp. And Paul says what it does ultimately is, is contaminate the whole lump. Now, that's, that's what he's trying to prevent here. He, he has uh, at, at interest preserving the purity of the church, the lump. And he's saying, if you allow a little leaven, eventually the whole lump is leavened. The whole lump is corrupted. Our old pastor years ago, Dan and Sheila probably remember this, <clears throat> but used to use a little different analogy and 
And this one, I, since I can't cook or anything like that, I'm, I can deal with it, you know, identify with this one a little more. But you say, you know, get a, get a bucket of, of pure water, maybe spring water or something like that. And then just take a little thimble full of ditch water and pour it in that five-gallon bucket of pure, crystal clear spring water. Now, what do you got? The whole thing's contaminated. It's not going to just take up a little area the size of a thimble in there and kind of float around. The whole bucket is now contaminated. So I understand that better than I understand yeast or, or leaven. But, but it spreads. That's the idea, okay? It, it's going to contaminate the whole loaf or lump. So, that's what Paul says. Get rid of it. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Again, notice, notice the focus is on the church. You, the church, you, you, the lump, cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now, we've been seeing this ever since verse 1, chapter 1. Paul's addressing them as the church. In other words, he's saying you really are unleavened. You've been washed. You're clean. You know, th- this is the way you used to live, but you've been washed. You're, you're clean. But you're not living like that. You have the Spirit. You're spiritual. He, he dealt with that to, uh, to a great degree. But you're not living like that. You're living like one who does not have the Spirit. You're living like the world. So you're spiritual, but you're living like someone who's of the flesh. You're unleavened, but you're living like you're leavened, like you're corrupt. So cleanse out the old leaven. And, and here's the imagery. And when they would prepare for the, uh, um, the Old Testament feast, uh, Passover feast, they would have to clean all of the leaven out of the house. And not just cook unleavened bread, but they had to get it out from everywhere, you know, sweep and, and, and get rid of it. And uh, so there was no leaven in the household, no leaven in the bread, because it represented sin. And it's not sinful to eat leavened bread. It was just uh, it just re- represented it was just a type, but it represented sin. And so there was a picture there of of cleansing when they were, when they would clean the house of all the leaven and cook the bread without leaven, the unleavened bread. The picture was. Uh, something pure, something, something without sin. And that's the imagery Paul is using. Now, he's saying, clean, clean your house up. Get rid of all the old leaven. Because you're a, you're a new lump. You're, remember chapter 1, you're, you're the holy ones. You're called to be saints. Called to be holy. So cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. In other words, live out what you really are. You're sanctified in Christ. You're called to be saints, holy. Live it. In chapter 10, he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's, that's how you live out the Christ-like life. That's, that's the new lump, living. For Christ... Our Passover, again in verse 7. For Christ, our Passover, our Passover lamb has been 
sacrificed. Let us, verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival. And that's, that's what they would do in the Old Testament um, Passover feast. They, they would clean the house of leaven, cook the unleavened bread, bake the unleavened bread. They would sacrifice the lamb and prepare the lamb. And then they would sit down and have the meal together, the Passover feast. Well, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The table is set, right? Everything's, everything's ready. Everything's been prepared for the new lump. Everything's in place. And this is the reality. This is not even just the type or the shadow. This is the substance. This is real relationship with Christ. This is real partaking, not, not of a, a flesh and blood lamb or goat, but a real partaking of Christ. Sharing in Christ. You're, you're, you're together as a body sharing in one lamb, Passover lamb. The true Passover lamb, Christ. So, verse 8 again, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. Now look, he gives, he, he gives a description here about what he means by the old leaven. And this is one way you can tell. He's just using an analogy here. What, 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 what does the old leaven represent? Malice and evil. What does the unleavened bread um, represent? Sincerity and truth. So cleanse out the old leaven, and let's celebrate the, the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. Notice here, Again, he's not focusing in on the man, although the man's got to be dealt with. Paul's, Paul's already given instruction. Here's what has to be done. <clears throat> Here's what you've got to do. The man's got to be dealt with. But he's not just looking to the man as the problem. And, and I want to emphasize that because what Paul is doing is saying, you, the church, have a responsibility For your own purity. And by allowing this man, and of course there were other things going on here we've been reading about. You know, their schisms, their, their rejection of Paul and his ministry. So there are other things going on as well, and I'm sure he has those in view also when he, when he describes the old leaven as malice and evil. But, so he's not just focusing in on that one act by that one man. He's saying to the church, you're allowing sin to infiltrate the bread that is supposed to be pure. The feast is being contaminated by the old leaven. The leaven of malice and evil. Celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, let me go ahead and read the rest of the chapter here, and then I also want to look at a passage in Matthew 18 as we consider 
some of what Paul's saying here. <clears throat> Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Let me, let me say one word real quick here. What, what we know as the book of 1 Corinthians is at least 2 Corinthians. Okay? There, was, there was at least one letter prior to this that we don't have. Um, the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to... Uh, I mean, obviously we didn't need it because the Holy Spirit didn't preserve it for us. But Paul is referring here to a previous letter that we don't have. So, 1 Corinthians is at least 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is at least 3 Corinthians, okay? <laughs> but uh, that's, that's not important. So, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That's a command. Not all, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world are the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. All right, first of all, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So, Paul's already given them instruction along these lines. And he's saying, again, you, you cannot associate for them. Now, he clarifies what he means here. Let me go back through this just a little bit and, and make sure that you understand what he's saying. You're not to associate with sexually immoral people, but he says in verse 10, not, not at all meaning the sexual, sexually immoral of this world. In other words, he's saying, I'm not talking about lost people, people outside the church. That's interesting, isn't it? Paul says, um, you're not to associate with sexually immoral people who call themselves brothers or sisters in Christ. That's what he's talking about. Those who are in the church who are sexually immoral or greedy or um, drunkard or idolater, whatever the case may be. And I said this morning, the word for <coughs> translated sexually immoral there is, is a general term can cover uh, a wide range of things. So, um, you know, things like adultery and uh, homosexuality, um, pornography. In fact, it's the word that our term pornography comes from. So, you, you can think, uh, for example, a big, big, huge problem in our day is, is uh, viewing uh, pornography on things like the Internet or watching movies or whatever it is. Um, all of that could be included in here. In this term, sexual immorality. It's, it's old leaven. It's, it's sin. It's not to be tolerated in the church, Paul is saying. Along with greediness, idolatry, drunkenness, swindlers, and so on. But again, he says, I'm not talking about the people outside the church. This, this is very interesting to me. Because it seems like a lot of times, if, if, we're, if we're not careful... Um, and, and I guess we think we're, we're, we're um, 
doing a good service. But we spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of, lot of language, a lot of words, trying to clean up the world. Judging the world and trying to cleanse the world. Sometimes the entertainment world, sometimes Washington, D.C., the government. We, we spent a lot of time trying to cleanse the world. And Paul says, that's not what you're to be about. That's not your business. He, he says, God judges those outside. We judge those inside. Our business is to clean the church. And so it's interesting how we can have so, so many efforts to clean up places like Disney World or Washington, D.C. Or, or, or whatever it is, while at the same time we're allowing all kinds of corruption within the church. So Paul is clear, he's crystal clear. When I tell you don't associate with these people, I don't mean people outside the church. You can't, you can't not associate with the sexual immoral, sexually immoral, idolaters, greedy, swindlers. You can't not associate with those people outside. Paul says you would have to leave the world. Almost kind of humorous there. I mean, he's just make, making a point. You'd, you'd have to get out of the world if we were going to apply that. And you can't do that. Jesus didn't do that, by the way. He was, he was accused of being a friend of sinners, <clears throat> a friend of uh, sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors, because he did associate with them. Not in, you know, he didn't join in, participate in their sin, but he did reach them with the gospel. Right? He took the message to them. He ate with them. He spoke with them. Now, Paul says, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that you're to disassociate with them. They're not our problem. And we're not to judge them. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? They're, they're outside, uh, if you want to say it this way, they're outside of our jurisdiction. We don't judge the world. God hasn't put us here without assignment. Our concern is the church, the insiders. It is not those, is it not those, Paul says in verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. So he's saying take care of business. Clean out the old leaven. Be concerned about the purity of the church. So again, verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That's what he's talking about. Anybody who claims to be a Christian who is guilty of these things. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, he may mean by that um, that they can't participate 
in the Lord's Supper. Because, again, we're talking about insiders, people inside the church. <clears throat> so, or he may mean, you just, you just, if somebody claims to be a brother or sister in Christ and they're, and they're living in open sin, they're living in unrepentant sin, uh, then, you, then you don't even eat with them. You cannot, this is the idea, you cannot have the, the kind of intimate relationship that brothers and sisters in Christ have and are supposed to have with someone that is unrepentant. That has to end. Because when they're expelled, they've got to know that they're expelled. Right? For it to have an effect. I mean, it can't be, it has to be a reality. Again, the hope being that it will cause them such great concern that they would repent. All right, now, I want to, just in regard to church discipline, because that's, this is a great example of that. So I also want to look at Jesus' words in Matthew 18. And uh, there's some very specific instruction there for how, for how the, the church is to deal with these things. And we've talked about this before. But it's been some time ago. And like all of the, uh, the counsel of God, it's good to be reminded anyway. Matthew 18 and verse 15. And let me, let me say, let me point out one, one difference here. When, when Jesus starts out here, he's, he's going to uh, talk about what seems to me, uh, um, maybe, at least might be a, a secret sin. In other words, somebody sins against you. And so something that everybody else doesn't doesn't know about. And, and so the first step is you go to them alone and, and, and you try to, uh, try to reconcile. And you'll see in a moment. But if they refuse that, then you take another witness. And then if they refuse that, then it goes before the church. Now, what Paul, you might be saying, well, the reason I mention that is because when we, when we read through these steps, you might be saying, well, why is Paul skipping all these steps? Um, well, in the first place, they might, uh, maybe somebody had done that. And we don't know. But it's a different situation anyway because this man's sin is very open and known not only by the whole church but obviously by other people because it comes to Paul by report. So the man who's committing incest in the Corinthian church, his sin is very open and the church is very open about it. They're tolerating it. And it... Let's say this too before we, before we go here. We think of that kind of tolerance, and this is what we're taught by the world, we, we think of that kind of tolerance as being um, just kind of the epitome of humility, don't we? I mean, after all, we, we don't want to stand in judgment. We, we don't want somebody to think that, we're, that we think that we're better than they are. And so we tolerate the sin. And we say things like, you know, meaning well, well-intentioned, but we say things like, well, you know, I'm a sinner too. What right do I have to say anything? But Paul doesn't call that humility. He calls it arrogance. He says, you are arrogant. That's, that's interesting to note. 
All right, um, Matthew eighteen fifteen. If your brother sins against you, and this is Jesus speaking, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that was required by Old Testament law. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That is, the assembly, the ecclesia, the assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means that, just to kind of put it in our common vernacular, we would treat him as a lost person. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. All right. There's four steps here, assuming they don't repent. There's, there's four steps here. First, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, in verse 15, go and tell him his fault. That, that's for, for a sin that is not common knowledge, and it's not an open thing, um, maybe they just, uh, uh, it was just between the two of you, you know, they offended you. That's the way to handle it. In private. That's where you start. You know, you don't you don't call the other church members and say, "Listen, what so and so did to me." You go to them. You go you go to the offender and talk to them, not not arrogantly. You know, I'm going to straighten them out, kind of thing. No, you, you go to them humbly. Again, Galatians six, Paul Paul says, "If a brother's overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness." So you go to them in humility and you tell them their fault between you and Him alone, Jesus says. So it's just the two of you. You keep it a private matter. And Jesus says, if He listens to you, you have gained your brother. So in other words, if He repents, then, then restoration can take place. The, the, the relationship is restored. But if He doesn't repent, then what? Well, you go to step two, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now you're going to take at least one other person. And it doesn't have to be someone that witnessed the initial offense. You're just taking someone along with you to witness the attempt at restoration. And again, hopefully the outcome will be that they, they repent. You know, they, they will see now, well, okay, I guess, this, I guess this is more serious than I thought. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I offended you, whatever, whatever the case is. That's, that's, that's always, just like we were talking about in Corinthians, that's always what we're hoping for, repentance and restoration. The, the motive is love here. The goal is restoration. If they don't repent, then you go to step 3, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that is, he won't hear you or the witnesses that you brought, 
Then you take it before the church. Tell it to the church, Jesus says. The whole congregation. Well, again, if repentance occurs at that point, it's, it's over with. And that's what, you're, that's what you want. That's what we're pursuing. But if not, then it goes to the final step. If he refuses to listen even to the church, that is, it's been made known to the whole assembly now, and the offender will still not repent. And this is what I think is key all the way through here. Because you may, you may be looking at this and wondering, well, now, what type of sin requires this action? What type of sin justifies this process? I think the answer is unrepentant sin. In other words, it's not the type of sin. The, the question is, are they repenting of it or not? That seems to me to be where Jesus puts the emphasis here. So again, if he doesn't listen to the church, then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile. Now, remember the context that Jesus is speaking in. Himself a Jew, speaking to Jews, and he's still at the point in his ministry where that's as far as the gospel is going. He's saying, to people, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they didn't have a high opinion of Gentiles. And Jesus Himself, when He was approached by the Syrophoenician woman who wanted Him to heal her child, turned to her and said, it's not good to give the children's meat or bread to the dogs. They didn't have a high opinion of Gentiles. It's a way of, of saying those outside of the covenant, those outside of God's family. So, so Jesus is saying, if they won't hear the church, if they refuse to listen even to the church, then let him become to you as someone who is outside of the church. It's the same thing Paul has in view in 1 Corinthians when he, when he makes that distinction between those who are outside and those who are inside. There's a distinction between the saved and the lost, God's people and those who are not. So let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And they didn't associate with Gentiles and tax collectors. And again, uh, that's, that's consistent with what Paul says about those who claim to be brothers, but they are sexually immoral or greedy or idolaters or drunkards or swindlers. He, he says don't associate with them. Now, let, let me reiterate one thing here before we, before we get to the end of this part. Um, the goal is still always repentance and restoration. Because again, you have to think for a minute. Okay, so if we treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors, that means we're done with them, we're through with them, they're cut off, right? Well, no. That means we 
evangelize them. I mean, that's, that's how we should treat Gentiles and tax collectors. That's how we should treat people outside of the covenant. Try to reach them for Christ. So, at every stage, I think repentance and restoration remains the goal. Always. Always. Now, James does say there's a sin unto death. And he says to us, you know, to his readers, I do not say that you should pray for them if they've committed a sin unto death. Everybody or anybody in here that can tell me what that is, raise your hand, please. I've never, I wouldn't know how to determine that. I believe it and I, you know, obey it if I knew what that was. What I'm saying is this. The goal is always repentance and restoration. If they commit a sin unto death and the Lord somehow makes us aware of that, then, I mean, James says, don't pray for that. But it seems to me that the Holy Spirit doesn't give us those kinds of particulars for a reason in the Scripture. And I'm not confident enough in myself to make that kind of judgment. So I think you always pray for them to repent and, and, and make efforts toward that and, and for their restoration. But you don't treat them like family anymore. You, you don't have the intimacy that you have with brothers and sisters in Christ. They are out of the fellowship. Paul is telling the Corinthians to remove him from the assembly, from the congregation. And you don't even eat with such a one. At least meaning don't partake of the Lord's Supper. And it may mean literally exactly what it says. Don't even eat with such a one. Verse 18. A um, couple things more here and we're done. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I wanted to, to read these last couple of verses for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because they're so often taken out of context and I think, uh, I think misunderstood. And two, because um, Paul has the same thing in view in Corinthians. He's, he's speaking, uh, saying the same thing in a different way. Uh, Jesus, again, in verse 18 says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And the, the structure of, the, of the, the language there is, is difficult for us, bringing it across in English. But the idea is, whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. So it's, it's, it's like what we do as a church in cases of discipline, what we do as a church, the action that we take under the authority of Jesus Christ is just a confirmation of what God has already determined and done in heaven. You say, well, how, how can... How can the, the action that we take, when we're not aware of what God has done, how can the action we take be a confirmation of that? Well, because God is sovereign and He sees to that. Uh, I, I think we just do it with, with confidence in Jesus' words here. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say... To you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, because of the context, I don't think um, that he's talking there 
about praying for things that you want and receiving them. If I just get somebody to agree with me, then whatever I ask, it'll be done. The context is, is, is still sin and, and discipline. And now, from verse 18 to 20, the context is the assembly, the church, coming together to deal with a person in sin. So, we've come together to bind or to loose. And Jesus says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask in regard to disciplining one who is overtaken in sin, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And I think, even though again, that's complicated somewhat, but I think the idea again is just a way of expressing we are operating under a, a, a real authority, but a delegated authority. And so he's saying, God, if you do this in the right way, which is, number one, you're in pursuit of the glory of God, you're, you're concerned for the glory of God, and number two, the good of that person, you're, you're hoping for repentance for them and restoration for them. And if you go about this in a godly manner, in the way that God has instructed, that we have assurance that God's will is being done. What we bind is already bound in heaven. What we loose has already been loose. What we ask will be done. Because we're carrying out God's will within the context of the local church. With His glory in view. For where, verse 20, again, saying the same thing. He's got the same thing in mind. For where two or three are gathered in My name. Remember, the Old Testament law, in order to condemn somebody, required two or three witnesses. And Jesus uses that here in the second step when He says um, that if they don't repent, you're to, you're to take one or two witnesses with you. That's so that it can be confirmed. That was required by Old Testament law. So now He's going back to that thought. Where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am among them. In other words, where two or three are gathered in My name to exercise under My authority church discipline for the good of the church and for the glory of God, Jesus says, you can be confident that I am among you. Now, real quick, I just want you to see that Paul has the same thing in mind back in 1 Corinthians 5, in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Verse 4, when you are assembled, that's the church, the assembly that Jesus was talking about. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's what Jesus was saying. When two or three are gathered in my name. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, operating under His authority, seeking His will, with His glory in view, and my Spirit is present with you, Paul says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. It's an interesting phrase. Remember, he's already said, when I come, I won't know the talk of those, but uh, the power, right? Here's... The, the, the talk of the arrogant people, but I'll, I'll know about them by their power. The, the power of the Lord Jesus. 
So, so this is this is real authoritative action being taken in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, when you're gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Whatever you bind shall have been bound. Whatever you loose shall have been loosed. Whatever two or three agree upon, it shall be done. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you, Jesus says. God is concerned, I believe, for the purity of His church. And, I, and, I, and certainly as a whole, you know, the church universal. And I think He's concerned for the purity of each local body. I think these passages evidence that. Paul's talking to a particular local body. Jesus is giving instruction here that would apply for a particular local body. You can't bring the church universal together to make this kind of judgment. It happens in the context of the local church. So, he says, cleanse out the old leaven. Your, your old characteristics, your old manner of life, the malice and the evil, he's, get rid of that. And celebrate. Celebrate the festival. Because the Passover has been slain. And we're, we're here to, to partake together of the goodness of the Lord. Celebrate together with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Any questions on your mind? I know that's a lot, but I want, I want to give you a little opportunity before we, before we go. And if you need time to mull it over, and we, you know, we can have a Q&A session later. Nobody's throwing anything, and that's always a good sign. So I like that. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> it's going to really going to depend on on that. That's an excellent question. But it, churches, I, I think, ought to work together on these things today. It's probably going to be, uh, a lot of churches probably aren't going to work with you, you know, on those things. But, but if they do, I, I think it can be done probably just by, uh, you're, you're talking about somebody who's, who's um, the offender is, is in a different local body. Then it would probably need to be uh, uh, taken to the, the elders of that body. Assuming all that is in place, see the difficult thing we have today, um, uh, and this is not an excuse to not do it. I mean, we can make an effort, but but the difficult difficulty we face in that kind of situation is that, uh, frankly, I think a lot of churches wouldn't cooperate, um, and when that's their prerogative. I mean, we we don't run other churches, but uh, but uh, that would probably be the response. You know, I was just in a conversation earlier today. You know, I, I have sent out. When a when a church um, requests, uh, you know, they, they send us a form for transfer of letter, request letter. The idea there is a letter of commendation, right? 
mean, that's at least that's my understanding of how it all started out. Um, what it has become is kind of a formality, and, and what they usually want you to do is check a box on a little card and send it to them. And 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 um, I can't do that with good conscience. So what I do is send an actual letter on behalf of the church, and y'all y'all know because I've I've read them to you at business meetings before I sent them. Um, but I, I send them a letter and, and say one of two things. You know, we commend this person to you um, as a member in good standing. You know, and, and pray the Lord's blessings, something along those lines. If that's not the case, and, all, and that has there's been times that's not the case. Then then I then I usually send a very brief letter um, that says essentially um, we cannot commend this person to you as a, quote, member in good standing. And I, and I leave it at that and, and just say, if you have any further questions, please contact us. Um, the time that I pastored here and the time that the eight years that I was at Germantown, uh, you know, I've, I've, done, I've had to do that. I've never had another church contact me with questions. And if I, were a pa- if I, if I as a pastor read that, um, I'd, I would be... I would have some questions. I'd be disturbed by that. <laughs> I'd be disturbed by that. And, you know, um, and I'm not trying to be, uh, uh, you know, negative. I mean, some churches do. And I've heard stories of, of churches cooperating, and, and, and I think that's the way it should work. But it would probably have to go to their their church. Um, you know, one, one brother that I know of, um, they had a man in his church that was uh, making uh, phone calls to women and, you know, doing the... Uh, uh, I don't know how long ago this was. Maybe it was before the, the all the good technology. <clears throat> of course, even now you can't always tell who's calling. But uh, he was making obscene phone calls, and and um, they they found out who it was, and they confronted him. The elders confronted him, and so he just left. You know, he just he just left, which is usually what's going to happen. Um, well, just so happened in God's providence that the church that he wound up at was the, the pastor there was friends with the pastor of the church that he left. So that pastor was able to notify him, telling the whole story, uh, and so he, he didn't get away from it, you know. But you don't always find that that kind of cooperation. But but you know, and one thing to understand here, it it needs to be done for the good of the offender. If you will think for a minute, and, and this may not be hypothetical with with some of us, but if you will think for a minute, if you had a parent that never disciplined you. That does not have a positive effect on you. In fact, the Bible says that, you know, that is unloving. The loving thing to do is to discipline. And that's why the Lord says, I chasten those whom I love. And so it's an obligation of love. Discipline is, and, and by the way, uh, clock is moving fast. By the way, um, not all discipline is corrective. You know, we, we've talked about this before, but there are essentially two kinds, formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative discipline is, you know, if you think of an athlete training, you know, they're not, they're not getting a spanking. They're, they're out there working hard, training to become better, faster, you know, jump higher, whatever it is. Well, 
as Christians, formative discipline would, would be what we are normally engaged in as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is, we should be encouraging one another. We should be in participating in church meetings and Bible studies and prayer. and All of those things are discipline also. If you, if you think of discipline in terms of training, and, and if you read Hebrews 12, I think that's exactly what it means there. Paul even uses uh, an athletic analogy there. Run the race with endurance. Right? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And then he goes into talking about discipline. And he has the idea there's training, training, training. So there's formative train, uh, discipline and there's corrective discipline. And unfortunately, um, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 even the form, formative discipline, you know, is, if you think about running or whatever, that's tough sometimes, isn't it? Lifting weights, running. And so, spiritual disciplines are not necessarily easy either. They're very hard on the flesh. The flesh doesn't like those things. But they're good for us. Fellowship, prayer, Bible study, it's good for us. Partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, so anyway, there's formative discipline, corrective discipline. It's all discipline. We're, we're to be engaged in it. Anybody else? All right. Well, if you think of a burning question later, <laughs> then, 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 then uh, let me know or, or say something, you know, at some point. And we'll, uh, we need to, we'll, we'll set aside a time to go through this. It's, 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 it's a, you know, topic that we don't often spend a lot of time on. So it's, it's good to uh, get a good script. We, there's a lot of passages that I didn't even go to, that we didn't even look at. Um, so at any rate, a lot more could be said. All right, if you would, uh, let's stand together, please. And we'll dismiss <clears throat> with a word of prayer. Um, Heath, you mind leading us in a word of prayer, brother? This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation, which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.